0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, we're continuing our sermon series on the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, just to catch us up to where we are, one one clue, uh, if you haven't figured this out yet, if you do receive the emails on the confession, if you notice, um, the confessions that we recite together actually come straight from the scriptures that are in between, and that we will look at this morning. One of the things that we said is, Lord, oftentimes we don't recognize you as our great reward, And one of the beautiful things that God is going to say to Abram is, I am your shield and I am your very great reward. And so uh, that helps us as well to kind of pull everything in and understand part of what it is that we're journeying through. So I encourage you, if you're on that email list, do take time to walk through, maybe even look at some of those passages uh, as a family and, and really kind of think through what it is that you're confessing. I know that we are not guilty of all of those things, and you will notice it, it, that the language is often, it says often or something to that effect, but I think it would be helpful for us as we look at the scripture to kind of think about um, some of the ways in which we are part of this story, and the story speaks to us deeply. If you remember from last time, uh, God chose Abram, and he chose Abram because he was the holiest guy on the whole planet, remember he was, he was the nicest, he gave more than anybody else, right, that's part of the story am I in the wrong Bible? No, who was Abram? Who was he to God? There's no one. In essence, he was was a 75-year-old man who still lived with his dad, whose wife couldn't have kids, and he worshiped household gods. He was essentially a pagan who didn't believe yet. And the Lord chose him He elected him, and why did he elect him? What was the the purpose of Abram's choosing, right? So that he could be the greatest man in all the world, so that he could be the most important person on the planet? No, so that the Lord could bless him, and in turn, out of that, a nation would be formed that would in turn be a blessing to the entire world. Remember, he said, in you and through you, all nations will be blessed. And remember that we saw that term blessing has a very firm connection to the New Testament and who Christ is. Blessing actually means to be granted the abundant life. Now, let's be careful here. We're not talking about prosperity gospel. We are not. Because sometimes the abundance of what you get is suffering. And yet, that somehow, some way, that suffering leads to a greater understanding of who God is and life itself that is incomprehensible under any other circumstance. Now, trust me, my name's not at the top of the list signing up for this stuff either. I don't even like saying that to you because usually when the pastor says something like that, it runs up on him sometime during the week just to see if he actually meant what he said. Notice I'm speaking in the third person away from myself hoping it'll fall upon someone else. And so so sometimes the abundant life is nothing of what we thought it would be. Think about it. If if the goal is to become more Christ-like, what did Christ endure? And what did he say to his disciples? You are not greater than your master. You too will endure hardship and you will suffer. First Peter, we just went through Job. I won't drag you back down that alley. But... Notice that sometimes the way in which we come to say, I have heard of you, but I have never seen you until now, is the path of suffering in abundance. And that too is the abundant life. And if He does call us there, know, what, know that He provides everything you will need to see it all the way through, to survive. And not just survive, but somehow, some way, flourish even in the midst of it in a beautiful way that only he could provide. Amen? And so he chooses Abram. And he says to Abram, now, Abram, I want you to give up everything you know. I want you to walk away from all safety and security. You're going to leave your heritage. You're going to give up the land that you know you have in your father, who is soon to die, by the way. And you are going to walk away from your family with your wife barren, meaning you may have no one to take care of you on the other side. And so when he calls him, it wasn't like he was leaving a trailer park in South Atlanta to move to Buckhead. No, he was leaving Buckhead essentially to go somewhere down in South Georgia, not knowing what he would find. And so remember, he is the the pathway by which will come the seed of the woman. We cannot forget Genesis 3.15 and how this plays into all this. And remember, Canaan was filled with the seed of the serpent, the cursed sons and daughters of Ham. And God says, go there. And not just go there, but build an altar so they'll begin to kind of notice you. And remember when Abram got there at the oaks of Moriah, God met him there. And he walked with him and again, condescended to Abram to let him know yet again, I am with you and I love you. And that's where we left off the story there. And then the story goes on if you were to read and they end up because there's a famine going into Egypt. And if you remember or know the story, Abram lies because he's afraid that they're going to take his wife away from him. So he says, "Eh, she's just my beautiful sister. And he didn't trust the Lord to, to protect. He, he almost immediately forgot what he probably should have known. And many of you have had that experience, haven't you? I remember one time in particular, I'd read in Proverbs that morning uh, all about, you know, Proverbs has all this stuff about, you know, a word fitly spoken in due season and not to be angry and all this kind of stuff. And so I'd read that, that morning was convicted by it. And there was a lady that I had told not to park in the handicap spot uh, where I worked at Progressive Sports Medicine. And as I was pulling in the parking lot, meditating on all of this gentleness and all this stuff, she's parked in that daggum parking place. And I got out of the car. I was hot, and the Holy Spirit did what He always does, which is be gracious, and He tapped me on the shoulder—not physically, but it was close. And I was like. And I get in there, and, and, and I'm, I'm not, I don't even have my jacket off. And I said this in a very authoritarian tone, which I was about, what, 30 at the time? And this lady's in her 50s. And, uh, and, and so I said, didn't I tell you not to park in that spot? And it went about as well as you could expect. I think she screamed for an hour solid. I had to hide in the front office. She called for my head over and over and over again. And I'll never forget my boss, Joe, comes walking. And Joe was from Pennsylvania. And he walks in and he goes, tell me exactly what you were thinking. I said, well, I'd read in Proverbs this morning. And I thought I was giving it a try, you know. So that was a prime example of no faster had I read it, no no, no sooner had I understood and thought I had it, that it, it slipped through my hands like sand. No sooner had Abram heard and met with the Lord than he's driven into Egypt or led by God, rather, and he lies, putting everyone at risk. And the Lord, again, has to condescend and step in and save him in the circumstance. And then he and Lot kind of get into it, and there's family rift, which we could probably all understand a little bit of, and they have to live in separate lands a bit, and then Lot gets in trouble. The four northern kings attack him, and Abram has to step in, and really an Abram that steps in, it's God. And Abram makes war with the four kings, and he defeats them. So now not only has he put uh, altars in Canaan, altars to an unknown god to the Canaanites, declaring them cursed, mind you. Now he's defeated the four kings. Not only is he dangerous, but he's in danger because he has gone from being the unknown 75-year-old man without any kids in Ur living with his daddy to being a warlord who has the favor of the Lord upon him, which you see again and again in Scripture. Do the surrounding nations like it when someone has the favor of the Lord upon them and they are at risk as a result? What do they do? They eliminate you. Remember Herod. We just looked at this during the Advent season. Herod was just trying to eliminate the competition. He believed that the Lord was bringing the prophecy to pass, but didn't for a second think that the sovereign Lord could also take him out. He thought, I'll take matters into my own hands, much like his dad had taught him, a man named Cain, long ago. When you have competition, the, easy, the best thing to do is just get rid of the competition so they have to take what you offer. This is a story as old as time itself. And so Abram now has shown up on the map and he is afraid. That is the context for where we step into this passage. But before we do, let me ask you a question that'll help kind of orient our minds to our time this morning. What is the greatest blessing that God has ever given you? Now, if you're smart, You always say Jesus, and it'll work out from there, right? But but truly, I mean, do do we really, really believe that Jesus is the single greatest gift, salvation, abundance of life that comes in union with him? Do we really believe that that is the single greatest gift we've ever been given? And if it is, then why do we strive for so many lesser things? Why do we run after lovers far less wild? It is important that we continue to remind ourselves that we can be given nothing greater than eternal reconciliation with the creator of the universe, the God who loves us, our Abba Father, which is only possible in Christ and Christ alone. The seed who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Listen to what Richard Bauckham says. He says, the Abrahamic blessing is more than a blessing of creation, Because it is designed to contend with and to overcome its opposite, God's curse. The ultimate goal of God's promise to Abraham is that blessing will prevail over curse. It does so when the seed of Abraham, the singled out descendant of Abraham, the Messiah, becomes a curse for us. See that's why I can say the Abrahamic covenant is the heart of reformed theology. It is the thing from which everything must rise. You should never speak of predestination that this is not what you're talking about. You should never talk of total depravity that it is not because of this understanding. That total depravity will not have the final say. That is the whole reason Abraham is chosen. That's the whole reason that Israel is chosen. That's the whole reason that the church is created. And you, you are chosen was so that total depravity would not have the final say. So that atonement would not be limited unto you so that you could then turn to those who need the same same fountain, the same bread, the same wine that represents atonement and redemption, that you would turn and offer it freely over and over and over again because he is inexhaustible. Amen? So this, this is the Abrahamic covenant. So let's turn to the text. Genesis 15, one through six, this is where we'll spend the majority of our time, and we'll hit some things in the other parts. But listen to what God's word says here. It says, after these things, meaning the war with the four kings and the lie in Egypt and all that stuff, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me, For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them, Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, being Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted counted it to him as righteousness. All right, let's walk through this. So what you gotta know is from Genesis 12 to now, about eight to 10 years has probably elapsed. And that's a pretty good long time from the beginning of the promise of the Lord, you gotta think, especially if you're 75, and he says, you're gonna have a child, and 10 years later, eight years later, there's nothing on the horizon. You gotta to begin to wonder, wouldn't you? And so he has someone, Eliezer, this would have been within that culture, something that would have often happened. It could have been a son that he adopted because of his advanced age, that he said, this man will be my heir. He'll take care of the household and take care of things when I'm gone. Or it could have even been a house manager uh, given Abraham's wealth at the time, that he had designated as the one who would take care of things when he was gone. And so Eliezer, we don't know if he was adopted or if he was a house manager. I, that's inconsequential because either way, it was the same thing to Abram. And so Abram is wondering, and so the Lord knows that he is troubled. The Lord knows that Abram is filled with fear because now he's on the map. Now he is dangerous and in danger. And the Lord comes to him and says, Remember, Abram, I am your shield. What does that tell us? It means that the Lord will protect us. If he says that we're going to be something or do something, it will happen because he is the one who provides all that is necessary to see it through all the way to the end. And that should be a great comfort to all of us. So often, I think, we wrestle against the wrong side of God's sovereignty, Instead of actually embracing the part that is most comforting to us, that that which he has given, that which he has called will come to pass. And tell me, what great story is there not some sort of tension or not some moment in that story where it looks like it's not coming to pass? Again and again, the scripture is filled with these things, right? So the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He even says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers so beautifully. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And yet, who denied him? Who, when he was crushed and broken on the cross, ran and hid for fear in the upper room because he thought, we are next. We are numbered among the dead. Peter. All of them, in fact. I strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Looked like the story was over. They, were, they saw it firsthand. But no, the story really was just beginning in its most beautiful form and fashion when Christ would rise from the dead and appear to them. Can you imagine? And we too, how often is it that we start out and we think, hey, the Lord's, ca- Lord's called me to this, the Lord's doing this. And there's always a bump in the road. It always, that's where we come up with all of these sayings. It's, it's what law? Whose law is it? Murphy's law. What is Murphy's law? Something always happens. Darn devil. No, it's the sovereign Lord who says, do you trust me? I'm going to take you through the valley so that you will grow in your understanding of who I am. This was not going to be easy. But do you trust me? Do you believe? Do you have faith? I wish it were easier too. I do, but it's not. And many of you have stories to tell, don't you? So the Lord says to him, I am your shield. I will protect you. I will finish what I started. And then he says, and I am, this essentially within the language itself, I am your very great reward. That means that, Abram, there's nothing more for you to gain. You have the I am. You have the creator of the universe as your father. I love you. Nothing can befall you that I don't deem so. And so you can trust me. Fear not the four kings of the north or any other nation. There's nothing for you to fear. Go and possess what I have said is yours. And notice how gracious God is. He appears to him first in a vision. And as Abram struggles, he says, yes, but I am childless. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says, I am walking around stripped. You ever felt like that? You ever felt stripped? Walking around, it's not a fun feeling. It's very difficult. It's hard. I know many of you are walking around stripped. And yet the Lord condescends again, even further, not just a vision, but the Lord himself says, come outside, Abram. And let me show you the stars in the sky, that which I have put into place, and I know every single one of them by name, and you can't even count them. I know every one of them, and I want you to look at them, and I want you to realize this, this is a representation of what you what will come from you. The nations, the 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 elect, those sons and daughters will be incalculable. Amen. And Abram sees that. And it says that he believed. Where he had faith. Meredith Klein says, essentially, Abram says, Amen. And so what is it that Abram believed? This is where it gets a little tricky, doesn't it, if you're not careful. Uh, and so, so what he believed was that the Lord, who said from Genesis one, who said to his creation initially, "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory, and have dominion, and I'll provide everything you need," and in Genesis fifteen, uh, Genesis three, essentially said that promise will hold even though the curse has fallen. The seed of the woman will be at war with the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the woman will strike. uh, The serpent will strike his heel, but he'll crush his head. The curse will not have the final say. And this is why that same cultural mandate shows up with Noah, and it shows up with Abram, and it shows up with Jacob, and it shows up in Jesus. Because his point was always to fill the earth with his glory for us to be fruitful and multiply, and for us to have dominion, and that we would have him as our great reward, our provision. The story has never changed. You must understand Jesus was never plan B. He was always plan A. And so he's saying to Abram, and Abram is believing that that God would redeem and hold the seed of the woman and protect as he said he would do. In fact, he's looking forward to one he does not yet know the name of. He doesn't know the name of Jesus yet. But he's looking forward to him. And if you would, turn, turn to Hebrews 11, uh, 13 just real quick and listen to how the author of Hebrews speaks of this. And remember, this is that, the chapter on the Hall of Fame of Faith, right? And it's got some pretty interesting names in it, Samson being one of them. And Rahab and and Abram is numbered among them as Abraham. And it says this. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So what that tells us is Abram was not caught up in the things of the earth. He was looking past all of those things To the full redemption that the Lord was promising, he understood that when the Lord said, You will be blessed, the, the, the nations will be blessed, that that could only happen when the curse had been repealed in full. He understood that that could only happen when there were no barriers whatsoever to being able to worship and enjoy the presence of the Lord. He understood that something greater than even Eden was coming. And that is what he said amen to. That is what he believed in. That is what he put his faith in, which is him saying that, God, you are my God. I trust you. You are my Father, and you will provide. And to that, it was accounted to him for righteousness. No act of his own, uh, but that he laid essentially himself before the Lord and said, it is you It is you who will preserve the remnant. It is you who will ensure that it goes to the end and it'll be fully redeemed and true blessing in full will come. And that is what we are called to believe as well. That the Lord will finish what he started no matter how dark it grows. I can't help but think of how many times in history have Christians found themselves on what seemed like the end of days. Whether you were a Christian in Nazi Germany, or Stalinist Russia, or during the Khmer Rouge, or during China's oppression, or or Romania, where it was brutally brought down on Christians. Christians were beaten in the streets, or in Turkey, where Christians are known to be skinned alive. It seems like that would signal the end. And yet the Lord says, No, the nations rage in vain, but I laugh. And unless they kiss the son, lest he be angry, they will will perish in the way. And so Abram believes that the Lord will, in fact, finish what he started. Listen to what John Calvin says of this passage. He says, for he who has God for his inheritance does not exult in fading joy. But as one already elevated towards heaven enjoys the solid happiness of eternal life, It is, indeed, to be maintained as an axiom that all the promises of God made to the faithful flow from the free mercy of God and are evidences of that paternal love and of the gratuitous adoption on which their salvation is founded. Therefore, we do not say that Abram was justified because he laid hold on a single word respecting the offspring to be brought forth, but because he embraced God as his father. And faith does not justify us for any other reason than it reconciles us to God. I've said this many times. and We all need to hear it again because we lose the handle on it. Remember, Jesus doesn't save you from God. He saves you to God. There is no Old Testament God and New Testament God. There is no dichotomy. He is unchanging, truly. And in Jesus Is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises that come from the Old Testament. You must understand that it is God the Father who sent Jesus. Is God the Father who longs for us to be able to come before him? Think of Paul's words in Romans 5, that Jesus did what he did. You are justified so that you can stand in the grace that has been prepared for you, so that you could stand before him. Think of the author of Hebrews. Jesus did what he did so that you could come boldly before the throne of grace to receive all that you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. This is the love of God for us, how deep the Father's love for us. We can't even imagine. The scripture tells us neither height nor breadth nor width or depth. You, you cannot fathom. It is unplungible. It'll take an eternity, which never ends, by the way, to enjoy it. That's how good it is. Now, trust me, I'm cynical, I, I'm macabre on things. I'm, I'm wondering how it's going to work out, how I'm going to smile for an eternity. I'm wondering how it's, if it's really going to be all that fun. Trust me, I, I, I have questions too. But there's a, a huge part of me that is growing as the years grow that is no longer cynical, that longs to be in my father's house and to go to the room and the place that has been prepared for me and, and dance, which my wife will tell you I don't like to do very much, at least not Seriously. So we see God condescended to Abram. He came down and he, 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 in a vision, promised him, I am your shield, I am your great reward. And he even took him outside and he said, look, look at my creation and let it be a testimony to, to you of me and my love for you and the nations. So how has God condescended to reveal himself to you? Now, let's be careful here because we're not all patriarchs as it turns out. But the Lord does speak to us in different ways, doesn't he? The Lord is gracious to us in ways that that we could just kind of say are silly sometimes, but yet it's the Lord saying, no, I love you. Just this morning, it was an interesting thing. I was sitting at Starbucks reading War and Peace, no less. And a guy comes in that I've begun to build a relationship with. He goes to an African Methodist Episcopal church in Woodstock, and he's starting the process of going into seminary. And he and I became friends because he saw me there one day reading a commentary on Second Samuel. That's how you make friends, by the way. You read Old Testament commentaries from the historic narratives. It draws people's attention, I think. Anyway, so he started a, just his friendship, and he bought me a coffee one day, just, just being gracious. And so we, we really haven't talked a lot, but he walks in, and he's, and, he's, and he's dressed up well. And he walks in, and he just starts laughing and claps his hands. He says, I knew I was going to see you today. I knew I was going to see you and that you're going to have a word for me. And I said, <clears throat> I'm reading more in peace. It may not, <laughs> it may not be good. I don't know. Uh, so he shared with me uh, something that he was reading from Exodus 3 and, and what it means to actually know the Lord, not just know his name, but to know him. And as soon as he spoke, yeah, I, I had a word for him. And we talked for a minute, and he was, he was crazy encouraged, and, and so, I, you know, I was able to say, hey, man, if you need anything at all, if I can serve you in any way, shape, or form as you're going into ministry, please let me know. But it was just this neat moment that I, it's a small, right? but it shows that the Lord's in a lot of places and he's in a lot of people. And so the Lord does condescend, either through a comforting word from a friend or an unexpected phone call or an email or something encouraging that we, that we needed at that time, something that gets us through the next moment. And this is how much God loves us, that he would step into flesh He would take on all that is humanity in Christ as Hebrews 2 talks to us about and as Philippians 2 so beautifully confesses that he would become a servant, that he would abase himself and endure all that he endured so that we would have a Savior that we could turn to, that we could believe in, that God was with us, Emmanuel, in the form and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And not only that, here's the thing I can't quite yet get my head around. And you may think, well, what are you pastoring for? But I can't quite get my head around the fact that he dwells with me. I am a, a dwelling of not only him, but the other two are in there too, God and the Spirit. And that ought to mean something more to me than it does. And I'm sad to say to you, I just, and I don't know that I'm going to get it figured out this side of eternity, by the way, but I do want it to affect more of my minutes and hours than it does. I pray the same for you. Let's turn back to the text. Verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans and give you this land to possess. But he, being Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now quickly, this is God declaring himself both covenant maker and covenant keeper. So Abram, again, is struggling. <laughs> I just I, I hear you. You say I'm going to have a nation. It's going to be his kingdom. But how, how am I to know? And the Lord, again, condescends. Notice what he does. He says, bring me three-year-old stuff, all these things. Bring me this, these farm animals, and we'll cut them in half. Now, what's that all about? Well, in the ancient Near East, this was the way in which you would make a covenant. One of the ways, anyway. Uh, It shows up in Jeremiah 31. So that's the only other place in the Bible that we see it. But when when they would cut them in half, essentially they would be laid apart. And so the Lord was essentially saying, I am cutting a covenant with you. And so at that time, when when Abram does that, these are all clean animals too, by the way. He doesn't cut the birds in half. But notice that these birds of prey come and a deep darkness falls on Abram, again, the Lord is condescending to help him understand that there is going to be a significant valley through which your children shall pass. And notice he does that before he tells him what it will be. So now, Abram, when God says, your children will will be slaves for 400 years, Abram has a much better idea what he's talking about. Abram can feel it in his bones because the deep darkness has fallen upon him. Notice also that Abram does not pass through the animal pieces. He is not even a part of this covenant from the perspective of making it and keeping it. He is an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. And what does pass through, and I've always thought this odd, smoking pot and a flaming torch. Well, there's a reason for that smoking pot because it's an instrument of purification and the flaming torch was something that would have been the light and the darkness. So even in this imagery is, the, is, is, is a, a wonderful message that happens to be true. Your children going into slavery will purify them, and I will lead them out and lead the way in the midst of the darkness. Even in this, the Lord is proclaiming his goodness and his truth. So Abram is not even able to participate other than to chase away the birds of prey so that the ceremony can continue. Again, we see God the covenant maker and God the covenant keeper. And he says something strange that we don't have a whole lot of time to, to unpack, but he says, until the fourth generation, until the sin of the Amorites is complete. Now, Amorites in this case would have been a, a synecdoche for, and that just means kind of a one small part for the whole, just representative of all of the Canaanite nations, It wasn't just the Amorites, it would be all of the Canaanites. And notice God's grace in this, oddly enough, which shows up again in Exodus 34 when he proclaims his covenant name to Moses and he says, I tell sin to stop after the third or the fourth generation. The Canaanites will not continue to abominate me. Their sin can only go so far and then I will give you their land. Now why Canaan? Well, Canaan was strategically placed to reach all of the nations. This is why Canaan. And so the Lord is evidencing grace and saying I am sovereign even over their sin. It can only go so far. And the prayer is that they would repent along the way. And, And some do, remember? Lineage of Jesus? Rahab, she's a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, Moabitess. Some do come out. Some from every tongue, tribe, and nation will confess and profess. And the Lord did that, not us. And amen. O. Palmer Robertson says of this text, he says, as the covenant is instituted formally in Genesis 15, the Lord dramatizes the gracious character of the covenantal relation by having himself alone to pass between the pieces. This covenant shall be fulfilled because God assumes to himself full responsibility in seeing it To realization. This means that God is assuring that which I have started, I shall finish. Some people think that is God calling the curse upon himself? Well, no, there's no chance for a curse because he is faithful. It won't fall on him. There's no way for it to fall on him because he will finish what he starts. This is good news to us, isn't it? Those of you who are parents, those of you who love family members that you feel like are so lost... And yet Christ saves to the uttermost. You know what uttermost is? Uttermost. (laughs) The farthest point out. And if you'd have known me back in the day, you'd say, yeah, I think Cameron probably represents the furthest point in darkness there is. As I would probably some of you. But praise God that he says, I am the covenant maker. I am the covenant keeper. Is it comforting to to you to know that your covenant relationship with God is mediated and moderated by him alone? Is that comforting to you? Or would you like a little bit of control? Would you like a little bit of say in this whole thing? It's all of us, right? That's the creator-creature struggle and distinction. This is why the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the garden to remind Adam and Eve, you are the created, not the creator, and you must always submit. To the creator. And yet that's not what we want to do by nature, is it? We'd like at least a little bit of say. A little bit of say in the direction of how this should go. Though we know so very little. We can't even see around the corner. We don't trust like we ought to. But yet the Lord is gracious to continue to provide what we need. To be able to worship him in spirit and truth. Despite our fallenness. Despite our foibles. Despite our mistakes. Now the last part of the text. Quickly. Says this on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Um, And so essentially, again, the Lord is saying, I give you this land, not for you to do with what you want, but it is a provision for you to fulfill the fullness of what the Abrahamic covenant is. For you to be a blessing to the nations, you must have land. You must first become a nation, have a land that is critically placed, and I'll take it from there. In fact, he took it from the front, right? I mean, he he made sure that they even had the land. And so this land is, is given as a gift to be used for the blessing of the nations. It had missional purpose. The Canaanites were not using it missionally. In fact, they were using it to destroy other people. That's why they had to go. They were totally against the covenant that the Lord had made. They were totally against the whole purpose of the Lord. Listen to what Michael D. Williams says in the book, Far as the Curse is Found. He says, God's choice of Canaan as a land for Abraham was intentional and central to the redemptive mission for which Abraham was chosen. What was important about this particular piece of real estate was its geographic relationship to other lands. It was a doorway to the world, on the way to everywhere else. Canaan was not an end, but a means. When Israel finally entered the land under Joshua, it was beginning its mission in earnest. So, here's the thing for us. What has God given you? What has God provided for you that you ought be using for his glory and the blessing of others? Now, did I just tell you am I is this are we fixing to get into a tithe conversation? Let's hope not. This isn't about tithing. This is about using all that you have to love your neighbors. This is about how you use that beautiful home that the Lord has given you. This is how you use that beautiful game room that the Lord has given you. This is how you use this, the beautiful gifts that you've been given to be able to bless others, whether it's to be able to serve them in terms of teaching them math, for crying out loud. Math is the highest good, isn't it? At least according to some in our congregation. And be able to use whatever gifts we have. It's not just about our stuff, but it's also about our gifts. And are we we thinking through, Lord, you gave me this. How can I be a blessing? Because in so doing, you will find the abundant life. I have felt no greater aspect of that than when serving others. In the time that we served down uh, in Bay St. Louis after Katrina, It forged within all of us who went something that was unable to be forged in Macon, Georgia. The same is true for many of you. Those of you who are going to the extension, you're starting to experience this. You're feeling the Lord forging something in you that is not possible other places. So I want to encourage us to be thinking as we go through this, what has the Lord strategically given you that can be uniquely used for the blessing of those around you? But first, you must know that you are blessed. First, you must know that God is your father. First, you must say amen, and it be counted to you for righteousness. So what do we learn from this? First, that God condescends to us so that our faith will come by his grace alone. Did you hear that? God condescends to us. I know that's a weird word to kind of use because it feels condescending, uh, but that means he just comes down to our level. God condescends to us so that our faith would come by grace alone and, and, and no other way. Second, God alone is the covenant maker and keeper and that's good news for us who mess stuff up. For those of you who are perfect, this doesn't mean anything to you. I don't know why you're here this morning. You could be somewhere else doing something good uh, or something better for perfect people. This is not the place for perfect people, by the way. And we do ourselves and everyone who comes here a great disservice when we make them think it is. Third, God provides us with resources for the purpose of glorifying him and blessing others. What we are given, we're given to give away in a variety of ways. We're given what we're given to be a blessing to others. Many of you are doing an amazing job at that. This church has shown great generosity over the last few months and and amen to that. The Lord has been glorified and it has been a testament to others. Know that. So as we close out Listen to what H.C. Leopold says about this passage. And just so you know, Sam Larson loves this guy. He's all in my library now. And Sam and Louise do send their greetings to you. I talked to him this week. And he said he loves and misses you all. Not just some of you. All of us. He said this. It is nothing short of amazing to find in the patriarchal ages so clear cut an answer to the question. How can a man be justified in the sight of God in the Old Testament? The way of salvation was one and the same in the Old Covenant as well as the new. It was the same. You had to believe in faith in the Old Testament that the Lord would redeem and bring it to pass even if they didn't know that the guy's name was gonna be Jesus. But they knew he was Emmanuel, that God would dwell with them and that one day all would be made right. Same is true for us. One day all will be made right and we are between the now and the not yet and so between those times... What are we doing with the cultural mandate that we've been given? So I want to pray for us. Um, Those of you, if you would like any sort of prayer, we'll have a prayer team in the back. You can come talk to me as well. Uh, We'd love to make sure. Don't leave today if you're confused about something or if something is is heavy upon your heart or soul or you want to give praise to something. Come share it with us. Don't let us putting up the chairs make you feel like you've got to hurry up and get out of here because you don't. We'll stay as long as we need to. But we do have to put the chairs away, so it'll be a tension there. But we do want to make sure that we're able to hear from you, pray with you, and love on you if that's what you need this morning. So don't don't leave without that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you come to us because we'd never come to you. Thank you that you show us what we couldn't see without you showing it to us. Thank you that you take us places that we would never choose to go ourselves. We are horrible arbiters of our own sanctification and justification, by the way. Thank you that you provide all that in the spirit, in Christ, through your word, through your grace alone. And may we all be able to say amen to that. For those of us who can't yet say that, would you be gracious to turn our heart from stone to flesh? Would you grant the fruit of repentance? God, also for those of us who've been at it for a long time and sometimes lose our way and sometimes forget and, and take matters into our own hands, much like Abram did when he lied to the king of Egypt, when he lied to Pharaoh. God, help us to find our trust again, find you again, to, to, to draw near to you so that we would not stand in our own understanding. For those of us who are continuing in grace, amen. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for you being our father. In Christ's name, amen.